Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. My name is Gary Cook and you're listening to another episode of Lions Legends. My guest today, he was the man who asked, where's your pride? Then again, only a little bit bluer. Back in the 1980s, he captained Ireland to not one, but two triple crowns and two championships. He also captained the British and Irish Lions in New Zealand in 1983. In fact, he captained every team he ever played for. It is great and an exciting privilege to be talking to Kieran Fitzgerald. Kieran, you're very welcome. Thank you, thank you, Gary. Kieran, uh, the first thing I have to ask you is: Is there a day that goes by that somebody doesn't reference your famous call? I would say there is, yeah. <laughs> but it, it is amusing for some of my kids now that when we are out somewhere and somebody comes over, that generally tend to be in the the, uh, the elder generation, the elder lemon would come over and say, I remember the days and I remember that and it brings it back. And they're always amazed that somebody who's an old fogey now would still be remembered by some people. And uh, I chat to genuine people, obviously, like I chat to them. I would say, Kieran, that it is, um, frankly, one of the most iconic moments in the history of uh, not just Irish sport, but rugby. Uh, what I always found quite interesting about it was the shot itself was a slightly different shot than they were using for most of the game. It was a touchline shot. So, and I think that's the reason why, why they picked it up. Um, but I remember it as being, in, and everybody does, as an incredibly sort of rabble-rousing moment. Um, I mean, is this something that you said quite a bit, or was it just in the moment, Ireland, where you were chasing a home victory for a triple crown type thing? Uh, I'd be very strong on the concept of, of identity and, and where you're from and, and the pride and all of you, but I don't think I've ever used it before or after. And where it came from, um, I, I, it was totally spontaneous. I, I think, looking at the match, it was our last match, and we were a light and mobile team against, uh, this, as distinct from previous Irish teams. But on the day, it was a really wet day, heavy day. England's a very dominant pack, and we were on the receiving. We were being battered for most of that match. And I'd say we had everything in the toolbox used in terms of uh, um, tactics of what we could do. We were defending quite a lot. And uh, I'd say we were down to the last, we were really back to the wall stuff. And I don't know where it came from, but I think that was our last stand nearly. Uh, and, you know. Well, I, I, it's one of my favourite moments in the history of all sport anywhere, I have to say that. Um, now, I've tried it myself. I've asked teams that I've, where's your pride? And you know what, it just doesn't work. I'm a, I'm a pale imitator of what you did. So you managed to, uh, you managed to inspire an entire nation. Uh, you you captained every team you ever played on, as far as I'm yeah, aware. Yeah, that's a fair comment. I uh, think I, I, I played a lot of hurling as a kid and, and football, and, and, and I captained those teams and captained Mary's, Connacht's, uh, Army teams, Ireland B team, which was called Ireland B team, and then when the opportunity came up in 82 to take on the, the senior team, um, obviously delighted and thrilled and honoured. Um, but I, I wasn't uh, uh, saying, what am I going to do? I kind of had an idea what I was going to do. But, I mean, that's just the way it was. I, you know, I, 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 uh, it inspires some people. I, I never was a huge weight for me. 
Um, I enjoyed the role and I enjoyed working with the teams I worked with because I, it's not all about me, it's, it's the guys you're working with. And, the, and you know, you're talking about the, 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 the saying earlier, like it's the response and it's the people, it's those people that make it happen, it's not me. I know you're surrounded by a really, really you know, outstanding team, a lot of very, very good players and, and uh, very, very strong-willed men. But still, getting, getting you know, the best out of people and having that kind of responsibility because you're you are the on-field captain you're also effectively the on-field coach you know so so did you ever find that challenging in any way with people who mightn't have been feeling good about themselves or well the success in 82 and success in 85 and the triple crown years the challenge there was different on both occasions because there were two totally different teams. Mm. Sometimes with a good team you get a run and you win a couple of with the same teams like the Limerick Hurling team now. You only get a run or the Kerry teams or the Dublin teams you get a run. But they were two different teams. And when I came into the 82 team, I had been injured for the previous six matches. I was captain at 79 in Australia. So I came back and I played in 80. Then I was out injured. In 81 when, in 81. W- when we didn't have a good... Yeah. Uh, triple crown a good, uh, uh, we, we, we lost six, na- six matches on the trot and I was in the stand watching it and I could not for the life of me figure out how we lost them to be honest with you because we had uh, and I was then appointed captain so I was there I mean I knew in my heart and soul that we had a really strong s- forwards number one I'd say the seven of those forwards were lines like you had the likes of uh, Willie Duggan mm-hmm. uh, Muskane Lord of Mercy both of them Fergus Slattery uh, Philip Bohr guys of that calibre Donald Lannan came into it uh, there were a lot, I don't know what to be a line afterwards, so that was Ed and myself. So they were, where would you get a pack of forwards there? And still, you know, to lose, Robbie McGrath came in at scrum half. Uh, John Robbie had been there, gone back to South Africa. Robbie was a great server. Then, of course, we had Ollie Campbell. Ollie Campbell was just a total maestro for us at the thing. And, and then a good back line. But we played to our strengths at the time. But the challenge going in was to win the respect. That's the, that's the challenge for any leader, I suppose, going in, is to win the respect of not the young guys, but the senior old guys. And the likes of Mossy and Willie and Slats, Slats had been captain, Fergus Lottery had been captain. He'd be captain. in our lines, 71. I mean, so, so, yeah. And, and, and John O'Discoll, hero of the Lions in 1980. So I had to, I, I deliberately went about getting to know the senior guys, them get more important, they getting to know me, what I was trying to do. And I did that through lots of ways of meeting them. I lived beside Moss King. And we used to go for the pint. We used to train. I trained four nights a week with Moss King uh, in Mary's Club. And people didn't know that. They always thought Moss was a lad for the road. But we trained on our own four nights a week. And, but we'd go to the pub afterwards. And I always, wherever they went, I went. And even in the Sunday sessions, training sessions, I knew there was a couple of senior guys always went down to a certain place in Vegas Street for a few. And I insisted on going with them. And I just wanted to be part of them. But yet, when it came to stuff on the pitch, I wanted them to know that I was the captain. And it worked well. And once I had those guys, then the rest will follow. So that was the challenge in, in the 82. 85 was different because we were a totally new team. Um, there were only three survivors in the forward. Donald, Donald uh, Philip or myself. The rest were young Philip Natchez, Nigel Carr, Brian Spillane, dynamos, absolute dynamos. A uh, new half-back, Mickey Bradley, Paul Dean out half. Hugo full-back, Ringland, Crossan, Brenny Mullen, Michael Kearney. All young guys who had no fear about anything. So when I went in, actually I went in because um, 84, I was thinking of retiring. Now 84, uh, sorry you got cross to there, Karen, yeah. but 84 was another strange year in that it was a whitewash for Ireland yeah. after two very successful previous years and then 84, a whitewash. 
Why was that as a matter of interest, or what was going on there? I, I don't know. I think it was a transition from the, oh. the teams of the 82 era. 83 was a championship win. That was the same team as 82. Then there was a transition. Lots of guys were moving on. I actually got dropped in 84 as captain after the second match. Uh, so I sat on the sidelines for that period. So at that point, and they were building a new team. At that point, um, I was thinking of packing it in at that stage. Only Mick Doyle, Lord Mercy in him as well. Had a came to me and he said, look, he says, are you interested in going next year? He said, we're going to have a whole new scene, this, that, and that. I'm going to be, he was just appointed coach at the time. Again, there was a bit of upheaval over that, but he got in as coach. Mick Cuddy was chairman. And he had a chat and I said, I said well, we discussed it. And he said, look, there's no gimmies here. He said, if you want, you're going to have to prove it. He said, you have to do it through the club, through the province, and prove that you're the man. But he said, I'd be inter interested to see if you're there, if you're, if you're willing to be part of the journey. So I said, fine, okay, I'll have a go. And I did, and I probably had my best season with Cranock and whatever. So I got into the team, but they had a whole new dynamism in that team. They're all young guys, didn't know, didn't know anything about losing, were totally uh, free-spirited, uh, would follow everything that Doyle would say, that I would say. There was a lot of pace in the backs as well. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one of the big the kind of lines of the whole thing from uh, McDowell was that he wanted the team to play and get it out to the backs and play quickly and all that. And they did. Correct, yeah, correct. And he was, Mick was way ahead of his time, but he played to the team he had. And they were very skillful backs. And it was a contrast to the 82, where there were forwards are very strong. Our forwards in, in 85, including we weren't that strong. We were light, but we were very mobile. And we could support a back line that could handle the ball, had great skill. And people said to me about the current back lines today, how good they are. I always thought that 85 back line, if they had been professional and think, the skill in those guys, individually and collectively, the skill they had, and they ran everything. It was a pure joy playing on that team in, in 85 in terms of you know, playing with those guys. Ah, absolutely. I mean, the centre pairing of Michael Kiernan and... and, uh, and Brendan uh, Mullen. Brendan Mullen. I mean, you know, world-class players. Yeah, yeah. And Paul Dean, like, refused... That refused to, but he didn't... His first option was passing, not kicking, which was... All the previous old house in Ireland were always dominated, but the kicking was yeah. the strong point. But Dino was passing, and he fed his backs, and he was ahead of his time at out half as well. And then the back three with Hugo, uh, with Ringland, uh, with Key Cross, they were great finishers. So I remember the first game was away at Murrayfield in Scotland, as far as I uh, can remember, and like the, the talk that Ireland are going to run it and all that. And within like a very short period of time, Ireland had scored a really good try, or you guys had scored a really good try. Um, and uh, Scotland were, I mean, Scotland won the championship uh, Grand Slam yeah. in in eighty four. So they were strong. Yeah. Um, and they were at home. And and the last score of that match was typified the Irish team on that day because we had about four minutes to go. We were behind on points and we just scrummed on about their twenty two. And we called a move that we had rehearsed and it didn't happen. Brian Spillane, just the way he reacts, he went on the blind side and, we, and it finished up. They went all the way across and Dino did a loop, but all through the hands. And Tri Trevor England scored a remarkable try right in the corner. And that allowed Scotland had no time to come back at us. And that was a remark, and that really set up that team for that season. Because the belief that that gave to the team, because we all had a chat there, this is our last chance, four minutes to go, but last chance, one more go. And everybody just committed. And then to produce a result like that, that's where the confidence comes and the self-belief. And that really set us up. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? 
Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. The game against England, and I, I watched a bit of it again on YouTube last night, it was a very heavy pitch. It was kind of mucky and, and, yeah, and tricky. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Underwood's try uh, in the second half, kind of deep in the second half. Yeah. Um, and then Michael Kiernan's brilliantly taken drop goal. I mean, I remember being at the match and, and thinking, oh, he's got a good chance for a drop goal. You know, he's got to get it. As, as you would think as a fan in the stands. But, but when you look at it and you think... The composure that he showed in that moment, and the and the, the lead up play uh, from the forwards setting that setting that up, and it was it was incredibly well executed under a lot of pressure. Under extreme pressure, we were up, we had been in our half for about twenty minutes. I remember it well. It was near the last ten minutes of the match, and we had a 22, 25 at the time dropout, and we called one move, we called one move that we had never used through the championship, which was a short dropout. And Brian Spillane was the target. Everybody else was lying well away. Brian Spillane was beside the kicker. And we used it and he worked and he gathered the ball. And we walked it all the way up to their 22. And we got a line out in the 22. And again, we had this move. And I had it with Donald that if I was throwing the ball in, sometimes you wait, you make your call. The opposition look at you, the, si the, the size you up, where are, where the jumpers, where is it going to go? I would just nod to Donald. Uh, no call and just straight in. And I so we caught them on the hop at the time. I threw it straight in. But referee, I think it might have been Alan Hosey, pulled us up, said, no, you're too early, you can't do it. So I said, so I said we'll never get away with it a second time again. They're bound to be mm. on their guard. And I looked at them and they weren't. So this time I threw it to the back and, and uh, Spillane at the back of the line. Again, without a call. I didn't think we could, we got away with it. He took it down. Then Donald took the, the loop and we yeah. peeled off the back and mm. set up a couple of rooks. And then uh, the ball in front, well, not exactly in front of the post, but the rook. And then Michael took the responsibility at the time. I know some of the wingers were bitching with him for why didn't you pass it out? We'd have scored a try, but he took the responsibility, and that was the end result. It must have been incredibly satisfying. I mean, you presided over an incredibly successful period of Irish rugby because yeah, you know it, it, they the, hadn't. The Welsh match that year actually was a significant match as well because that was in Cardiff, and we hadn't won in Cardiff for I don't know donkeys of mm. thirty years or whatever it was, and everybody was writing us off. Like even though we had a good win against Scotland. But to go to Cardiff and how intimidating it can be, and you have a young team there, and to play the way we played, I'd say we were probably beaten in the forwards, but the backs were incredible. The backs scored some magnificent tries, and we won the match against the odds in Cardiff. And again, that was a milestone, I think, that it gave the team that bit of uh, a jizz and jazz. You could see it. I mean, Dino had the back line wearing dicky bows after a match because they were different. And I said, great, walk away, you're not, you know, put on what you want to put on. But that was their identity, like, and they wanted to, the backs, the young backs with the swagger, uh, and they had these little dicky bows they all wore, which the rest of us never <laughs> put on, but that was, that was the culture, and we allowed it, and it was, you know, that was the enjoyment as well. Uh, you also uh, played, at, you know, this stage right throughout your career for, for Connors. Right? Yeah. So uh, I was intrigued to hear that you trained in Athlone, because uh, uh, I presume that was a halfway house for everybody, and also that you trained <laughs> under one light. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and also sometimes the showers walked after, and sometimes they didn't. But sometimes also the problem with one light, irrespective of the mind that what you can't do tactically because you can't see halfway across the pitch, you can see a line if you have all the lineouts under the one light. 
but you can't see what's happening out the back line. So, so restricts the training. But the other big disadvantage that on the pitch at the time there was a, a good number of cows around the area. Okay. And of course, in the pitch you had all this other where the cows normally do when they need to go, they go on the pitch. Yeah. So you came off it, you were covered in lots of nice mm. stuff, mm. smelling healthy enough. And I remember one night we were coming back, and uh, I was driving the Dublin guys back to Dublin for the Connacht guys. And we stopped to kill Began or Kinev, which was a Chinese restaurant. It's about 10 o'clock at night. So we all piled in, got our Chinese, and ate it on the way home. And the next morning, I was taking my wife to work into town, and we out, and the smell in the car of both the cow dung and the Chinese and the rapper all left in the car. <laughs> Hardly a professional preparation, but they were some of the times. Uh, yeah, well, it's always best to um, to to keep the missus happy when it comes to your car. I've yeah. I've noticed that it yeah. seems to be a, a flashpoint. Yeah. Uh, um, it sounds to me like you did an awful lot of uh, training at that time. I know, you know, strictly speaking, you weren't professional, you weren't paid for it, but the amount of time that you, I mean, you're talking about training four nights a week. Yeah, yeah. And some guys, I mean. And maybe more. Ollie Campbell told me at one point he was training for seven days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a serious commitment. It was, and and I, I probably grew up with um, I was in Lockery. Hurling was the main sport, but boxing was a big sport in, in Lockery. A very successful boxing club, and I trained with them, and we had a very successful. We won lots of titles, Connacht and Irish titles. So we trained really hard with the boxers. So I was used to, from a ten-year-old, used to training doing light weights at 11 and 12, even, even though I wasn't a big guy. But I was used to that, and I was used to training nearly every night I could, except the nights I wouldn't, maybe on a Sunday I mightn't, but then you'd have a Sunday morning session. So I was used to it, so it wasn't a big thing for me. I know for some of the other guys it was a slightly different culture, but the one thing I've always told people asking about Mossy, who was always kind of viewed as the hail fellow well met, he trained exceptionally hard in that year of 82, because uh, I was with him and I witnessed it, and he used to outpace me probably easy to set out but he, he on 400s and 800s we'd had the whole thing planned out so people like and Willie Duggan people said he used, used to he, Willie went down and he trained in, in, in Kilkenny trained with the local football team so you know it, 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 um, it's not a huge surprise to hear it now yeah I always thought the, um, the Willie Duggan stuff I mean it, the stories become become something of the myth um, like, you know, uh, sure, if it wasn't for the booze and the fags, I'd be, be kind of so fast, I'd be offside all day long. That, those kind of lines, which are all very funny and, and all that kind of thing. But the reality yeah. of, of you guys is that you were training very hard, very tough, tough men. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, that was camouflage for anybody. And Willie loved putting that stuff out. Yeah. Just throw it out there. But I can tell you this much. Any, you ask any player who played with Willie Duggan and they say, who would you prefer to play with? And not to mind the selectors who select the team. Ask any player. Willie Duggan was the first man they would have on the thing because Willie was a... Not alone was he, was he a good athlete, like, but the guy was uh, very, very clever as a number eight and he was exceptionally strong. And the guy knew no fear and he could take as much punishment. I remember in the, the 77, talk to some of the 77 lines who came back. They could not believe... He played nearly every match down there. They could not believe the amount of punishment he took Lying on the ball, and that time forwards were allowed jump on forwards and rook them. And in New Zealand, it was a rooking game. And he, the punishment he took, but that was the respect Willie had. He was a fantastic guy to play with. Now, you also had the privilege of captain, captaining the Lions in 83 in New Zealand. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that tour and, and, the, and the background to that tour. Uh, uh, it was a good side. It was considered to be a good team. It was a lot of good players. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I think there was a lot of distraction uh, prior to going there because of a lot of it mainly to my appointment as captain because a lot of the English media would felt that Peter Wheeler, even though England had a disastrous season, he was a yeah, he hadn't captained, but they felt he was the man that should be in in, in mm. possession. They they backed him. I think the fact that I was uh, I was an army officer at the time as well. I don't know how, how that well how well that went down, but there was a lot of uh, um, negative press which. Probably directed people reflected on the team, and the team, the, our team, was saying, "What's going on here?" You know, they knew me from playing against me in the championship. So I knew I was a reasonable guy. I was kind of uh, there was no hang-ups. I wasn't uh, chasing press, but so they got across. And my only argument to all that is that hold off, guys. I said to even to journalists, I said, "Hold off, you haven't, you don't know me." I said, "Just wait till you see me playing, and then make your call." But it continued on into New Zealand, and I got to such an extent that it was unprecedented at the time down New Zealand because normally you go to New Zealand. Their press and their media are really hostile, which is fair enough. They're back their own team, and it's part of their culture. But Don McLean, who was a very influential journalist down there, did a long interview with me in the first week I was there. And suddenly, in the media down there, he started coming out. So it was unheard of that you could have a, a New Zealand journalist talking about the, the Lions captain in, in a favourable manner. But that was the start. But then we got we got on and we gelled. Uh, unfortunately, we lost our test matches, and that added to the pressure. But there was a great spirit in that side that stuck together despite the pressure of not winning, despite the pressure of negative media, despite there was no splits, despite a lot of attempts of people and reports I read where people were trying to say there were splits in the camp. There never was. And you can ask any member of that squad, there never was. And we still had a reunion there not so long up in Portrush, and they all turned out and we all laughed at some of the stuff that went on at the time. But it was a tough, hard tour, but for me, it was probably the most enjoyable from a rugby point of view because I never got a chance to train every day with so many good players and tough training. I played tough matches week in, week out. And I had played 12 of the 18 matches, I think, or something like that. So I was playing a lot of matches. You I, won a lot of the Wednesday matches. Yeah, we won. Matches outside yeah, of the yeah. tests. If we won the first and third test, I thought we, were, we had a shot. We had a very good shot. We should have. And if you had won that, then things changed. But look... In that level of sport, it's cruel. You're judged by what you win and what you lose, and that's it. You just get on with it. Like that's, that's the result. And what would your advice be, by the way, to people who are going to New Zealand on a Lions tour? Because it sounds, it sounds like you're through the ringer. The di biggest difficulty is merging four nations together in a short space of time before you go. You've got Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland who are playing different types of rugby for a coach and manager, and at that time... There was only <coughs> Willie John was the manager, Jim Telford was the coach, I was the captain, and there was a doctor, and that was it. You know, that, that was, uh, I, I, um, I know when Clive Woodward went down, I think he had 17 coaches, and he had a management team of 25 or 26 back to New Zealand. I heard 26. Was it, yeah. Well, I, I met Clive in Thomas Park 4, and I said, Clive, you, you're serious. I said, you want to make sure you get your voice heard, I said, amongst all those guys. And I said, there'd be disgruntlement amongst the coaching team that they won't be heard. But anyway, we had to tell for myself, so we were trying to figure out at the training sessions what we do, on the selection, what we do. So it was a great experience from that point of view. Uh, but it was tough and mentally hard, but I never, I was in a bubble. So I never, I was never really bothered by outside stuff. I was kind of just doing my thing, uh, looking for the win all the time. And we were successful at the, the, pr the prevention matches. So we said, it's going to come in the test, it's going to come in the test. So it was not until the, the last test in the second half that I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the only match which you were, which you, which you got a, a bad beating. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Ollie was, Ollie Campbell was injured. I think by that point, yeah, he did yeah, his hamstring. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. so I've often wondered, what is it like when you're dealing uh, with? I mean, I know there's an awful lot of other ceremonial stuff and 
bonding stuff that goes on uh, with the Lions squad and all that. But what is it actually like to deal with other lads who may have pretty big egos themselves and, and all of that uh, when things aren't going well in the test matches? Is that difficult? It's difficult. There is a challenge there. When things go well, it's great because you're with a really high-class calibre of player, really top-class, and you're amongst that kind of elite group. And things going well, yeah, you've nailed it. And that gets better and better. But when it doesn't go well, you have a lot of work to do to make sure that you don't get your cliques because of different countries, to make sure that you don't get any negativity going through the squad, that you don't let... And there will be people trying to undermine from the outside, naturally, like local media and people, maybe a few of our, our, our own at the time. But you get all of those challenges. But we worked hard and very conscious of that fact. And uh, the fact that it never happened was probably the greatest satisfaction, I think, I got out mm. of a very difficult situation. The fact that it never happened and we never actually split. Uh, and great memories and good buddies from it ever since I meet them. Uh, so that was that was the, the satisfaction. But it is tough, I won't say it, it, it is tough. You know, it's always struck me as being, uh, it, it couldn't be anything other than tough when you've got yeah. so many different, not just individuals, but but, but just countries. And guys not getting selected yeah. then, and then they're saying, well, if you selected me, it wouldn't. The usual, the usual stuff you would get. That's to, that's to be expected as well. Uh, and are there any players who are of, of Mundert who are there know that they're a Wednesday player and happy just to be a Wednesday player? I won't name one or two who are happy to be Wednesday players because they were, uh, but the rest of them, normally a Wednesday player is not happy. Wednesday player wants to be a Saturday player. Yeah. He wants to be on the big provincial teams. He wants to be on the test team. And <clears throat> the calibre of the guys who go in the lines, they're all ambitious, but the majority. But there were one or two who were, there was a certain guy who was called, he's too... You know, if you're on his tour, you're on the Wednesday and you enjoyed it and, and you kind of enjoyed everything about the place, and, and, but that was it. But maybe some of those guys were never going to be on a Wednesday. But I mean, of a big party, or we had a party of 30, I think. Uh, probably not as big as what you'd have now, but most guys are ambitious and they want to be on the Saturday team. Well, you're talking about a, par a party of 30. Um, uh, I, I'm going to be talking to uh, James uh, McCarthy, whose father uh, was on the 1950 uh, tour, Lions tour. Uh, and I think there was, um, I think they went by a boat, uh, <laughs> yeah. the last Lions team to go on a boat, yeah. which took uh, about six weeks to get there. Right. It was like going off to war. Um, just, just on the Lions tours, one thing that I'm kind of fascinated by uh, is, possibly for the wrong reasons, but is, um, is the 74 tour. Now I know you weren't on the 74 tour, right? But uh, Woody John McBride obviously you know, the famous 999 or abbreviated to 99 call and all that kind of stuff. Do you think more is made of that than there actually was? Um, because I have to say, um, and maybe it's not my place to say it, but, but I, don't think there's, I don't think there's that much wrong because, you know, in some places in the rugby playing world, things are absolutely, they look vicious. Well, I think at that time, in that era in South Africa, it was a question of survival, I would say, mm -hmm. and establishing a respect. And the culture there was a very physical culture, and they would go out to intimidate in any which way they, they could and would, and, had, and were known for it. And Willie knew that, and I've spoken to Willie a good number of times on it. And they knew that, and everybody expected it. And uh, it, it, it was, um, I remember Willie John's 80th there last year up in, in Belfast, and Gareth Edwards was on the table. And, and Willie and there was all the guys, the, the Frank Cotton and those guys, 
and uh, they were talking about the, the time and, and Gareth Edwards made a speech and he was talking about it as well and he, Gareth was saying that some of the backs at the time were scared out of the lives of some of the lines forwards because of the level of physicality and the level of, of, of ferociousness and the level of when they said they were going to go when one was in this was all in because they didn't know what that meant until the first match and he told some very good stories about that but for them it was a question of survival at the time and, uh, and I think equally in New Zealand as well they test your mettle you know, they want to see the colour of your eyes. They want to see what you're made of. And if, you know, you're allowed to take a bit of physical punishment, which you dished out from time to time, they want to see how you respond. And then they either decide to respect you or not respect you. And that's what you... That's what you and you have to remember there were less cameras in the, in the corners and in the stands watching. And there were no replays. So people could take a, lot, um, a more flexible licence of doing so. <laughs> a more flexible licence. Uh, nice language uh, to describe it. Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard from several players that at that time, uh, in the particularly in the eighties and into the early, in, into the kind of pre-professionalism days, that things were really, really pretty, pretty hard. Well, I, I came off after one particular match down there, and, and um, I was at the receiving end at the back of a rock, and nothing I could do. You're trapped in the rock, and at the bottom of the rock, and I could see the guy and top me, and he was he was a second row who was looking for a New Zealand spot, didn't make the spot. But I could see him, and he did a jig on, on me, and on my head, and split me across the forehead. And I was looking up at him, and I was trapped inside, and there was nothing I could do, and I looked up. And the press interview afterwards, I was coming in, and New Zealand guy said to me, he said, uh, oh, yeah, see, you've gotten the wars. He said, how did you manage to get into that? So I said I was in a situation where I, nothing I could do control, and I said I got stamped on, and I said, and, and said, what do you feel about it? Well, I said, anybody who would do something like that, in my book, is a coward, I said, because he knew of something I could do. And of course, all hell broke loose afterwards because they said Fitzgerald brands the New Zealand team cowards, you know. But that's what I said, you know, for a guy. And at that time, the, the rocking, you know, again, you had a flexibility license there on the rocking. But I was looking at him. But that's that's par for the course. But I, I played on. I was got stitched up and played on. <laughs> now, uh, you're obviously a, a, um, a very uh, physically robust and tough man. And obviously, you must have been psychologically tough as well. Um, you were a boxing champion as well, an all-around boxing champion, from qu at quite a young age. How old? Are you? Quite a age. At the ages of, I won two. One at the age of ten, and one at the age of uh, thirteen. Uh, we had a very strong boxing club in Lockray. There was a German guy who had been rumored to be in in, in Waffen SS. Who came to work in Tina Mines, became our coach, and he was really, really good. And um, he, we used to win six or seven of the Connacht kind of titles, and we won two, one or two of the Irish titles. So in the different age groups, I won at uh, school by and at boy level. Of course, my mother was always against it. So at the age of 16, she says, no more boxing, no more boxing. She hated the thing. So I stopped boxing, and nothing ever happened afterwards until I went to university in Galway. And this guy that uh, knew I had boxed, and he said, look, he says, uh, the British and Irish Universities Championship are coming up. He says, we're stuck for a middleweight. He says, will you step? I said, I haven't boxed them. But anyway, I got into the ring with him a few times, and I went up and went to, to, to Trinity at the time it was. So I added on British and Irish middleweight championship for the boxing. But I never boxed since, and that was it. Like, I was never intended to pursue it. But it must have taught you uh, things that you mightn't even learn in, a, in, in any other sport. I mean, Queensbury rules and all of the kind of psychology that goes with that. Did it? Or? It taught you to rely on yourself. Yeah. that there was nobody else coming to defend you. And if you were going to be on a thing, you had to sort it out yourself within the time frame of, of the length of the round. And if you had a bad one, you had to make up for it in the next one. So there's no other way. And you couldn't get outside the ropes either. So you, you, it taught you how to 
deal with it and um, and also the training and the mental training even though I didn't realise that at the time it was it was a good regime and the boxers were hard trainers boxers everywhere I come across are really hard trainers um, so it taught me all of that and a lot of discipline but basically if you're in trouble you've got to sort it out yourself and, and, and give you a bit of confidence and a belief that you can sort it out you know so so it, it has a, a kind of a, a galvanising effect in a way on your on your own sort of mental state if you can if you can cope in those situations. I, yeah, I, I would. Believe, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's fair comment. Yeah. Uh, and you were you were also uh, in the in the military. You were an, an army man for uh, up until eighty six. Eighty six. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. you were aide de camp to uh, Patrick Hillary. President Hillary at the time. Yeah. I finished my career in, in Arsenal as as aide de camp. Okay. I worked in Dublin mainly in fifth battalion. I was operations officer second battalion and. I was in Gormanston at the time and some of the issues on the, on the border. And then I finished up as a commandant in, in uh, Aedicom in, in, in with President Hillary, who was a great, a great man to, to be beside, you know, in terms of, you know, little imports he would pass on to you. Like what did that involve as a matter of interest? I, you know, you were very much backroom. You were very much backroom yeah. and, and, and uh, a lot of protocol. And a lot mm -hmm. of it was protocol, very much backroom. But sometimes in, in the evening, when things were very, very quiet, he'd work in his office and you were on duty until late at night, you, you work from morning and then you were on your own and he was on the other. Sometimes he'd give you an, an opportunity to have a conversation, which was very insightful. And very, very clever, very astute man, uh, very underrated in my book, like, and I'm, I'm no expert at it, but uh, I spent two years there, two good years, and I had always planned to exit, and I had told him at the time that I was planning to, to move on. I had signed on after university. At that time, the army would pay your way through university, and you had a commitment afterwards when you came back to sign on for 10 years. And I actually stayed on for 12 years after that, so I had two years of school, so I was for 15 years in total, which I enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, but I had it in my head, you know, for the last three years that I would like to just change. Uh, nothing against the military. I enjoyed every minute of the military. Again, gives a great sense of camaraderie, team, the, the benefit of a good team, uh, confidence in yourself in dealing with people, um, all of that, um, and dealing with troops and getting respect and... Um, looking at other people, good leaders, and so, all of that stuff. Um, so I did enjoy all of that, but I, I felt in my own being that I just, I, I'm a bit like that in life. I like to change, go do things for a while, and then fine, great, to move on. If I feel I'm getting a little bit uh, less effective at doing something, maybe I just, whatever, I just like to move on. You seem to be very um, kind of pragmatic and uh, uh, well organized internally. Yeah for want of a better expression. I mean, is that something you always had? And, and focused, and all of, all of the things that are helpful. You should ask my wife that question. <laughs> She'd probably give you a better answer. Um, I, I, look, yeah, I think I'm reasonably organized. Uh, when I see something to be done, when I don't see anything to be done, though, I, I, I'm a drifter, like, and I would dream about things and think about everything and anything. But, but there's a task there, and it has to be done, and how it has to be done, I would plan and look at the execution side of it. But when there's no task to be there, you know, I, I, I can take it handy and, and wander as well in my own mind, you know, let things go. Okay, you're not relentlessly driven. No, 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 I wouldn't okay. think so, no, no. no okay. No. Uh, one, uh, a couple of questions just before we wrap up. Um, for people who are who may be struggling with, um, with anything in sport or in life generally about, you know, confidence issues or anything like that, uh, Belief issues. How would you uh, suggest that people approach that kind of thing, given your own experience as a leader? 
Um, I'd say the most important thing uh, for somebody on the way up is to learn how to lose a match or lose a contest or lose whatever you're doing and still come back stronger from it. You've got to use a learning from something like that to come back stronger because that builds your, your mental strength and your confidence if you can do that. Uh, because I've seen lots of... I, I, I was in coaching with Mary's. I coached Irish under-21. I've coached the Irish senior team. And I've seen young guys coming out of school, good colleges, very good rugby schools, coming in under-21, where suddenly the forwards, the guys they're meeting, are bigger, as big as they are. So they can't get a dominance by being big. The backs are as fast as they are. So sometimes in school you get a really speedy winger who can beat everybody, or a big, strong forward. And you're coming out under-21, and you're playing internationally against guys that big or bigger than you, like in France, and they tend to be under underage, tend to be really big, or England, they tend to be as big as their senior team. So you've got to deal with, 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 with all of that. So that's a learning curve. And I've seen guys with very successful careers and they come against that reality. And it's not being successful and doesn't work for them. You can't run over guys anymore. You can't run around guys. So you've got to think it through. And they've got to stop. And I've seen guys move on from that and learn and, and be able to come over. And I've seen guys not. I've seen guys actually go down. So there are various milestones in careers. And um, a lot of it is to do with winning, losing, injuries, or is another big one. How do you deal with the injury? And if you're out, can you stay, stay motivated? Can, and even you see a team being successful. I mean, there are lots of examples of that in, 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 in sport. Uh, and deal with all the... the pers- you've got to be really persevere with stuff. Perseverance is a huge thing you need. Belief, confidence and perseverance, they're the three biggest things. And keep going at it and keep believing because, you, you know, it, it will happen to you sometime. And sometimes... To get the traction, there's only small bits that happen initially, but then you, you go and you get into your teammates again and you can get a real surge. You know, I, 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 it's even like me coming back in the end of 1885. I got a surge there personally and I really enjoyed the road and I enjoyed everything about it because I was in very good company as well. Um, I have to ask you before we go as well, um, what was it like facing France in uh, Parc de Prince when they were on... Absolute fire. Well, <laughs> you might be referring to 82. Uh, well, no, 82. I mean, w- w- you guys nearly won that match. I mean, you yeah. weren't far from winning that game. No, yeah, yeah. Now, I know it was four weeks after you'd won uh, the, yeah. the trip crown in Scotland. Yeah. So you probably had a little bit of momentum yeah. blocking. But, but I remember... There was a, a play with Robbie McGrath passed the ball out to uh, Slattery and it just it just fumbled a bit and there was opportunity scored. there. And I was know. inside Fergus at the time, <laughs> but the, the opening part of that match about France, that like the, the rules were slightly different as well. I mean, there was a forward play. You know, you you fold and you engage and you and you scrum. Those days they line up five meters, six seven meters apart, and it's bam charge. And the opening 10 or 15 minutes of that match, purely savage stuff. Like it really was. And second rows came through with uppercuts, everything. I was just thought I was playing, I was boxing again. And, and I was going around seeing stars for about 15 minutes of that match. And, and that's what it was. But against France, it really is physical. I mean, it really is. You've got to sort that problem out first, and then you can play. In Parc de France, I'm playing against them. The first 20 minutes, they'll blitz you with everything they get. And for some of the players... I mean, the Irish team, when they played over there during the last year, uh, the year before, the season before, in COVID, for the first 20 minutes, people who hadn't experienced what happened in France, they just blitz you in the first 20 minutes. So you cope with that and you settle down. But it's the physicality against France, it's the pace they played. If you allow them to play that game, uh, that can be a really, really brilliant team. 
but I mean, Irish team have shown how to cope with them now this year, last year. So it's it's uh, but they are they're but that those deserts were really physical. And they came back. I remember they came back in '85. We drew with them in in, in Lansdowne Road. The opening ten or fifteen minutes of that match in Lansdowne Road was hammer and tongs as well. Oh, I remember it. Yeah. I was at that game. It was fifteen fifteen. It finished yeah. up and. Um, I remember, I th was it Willie Anderson? I can't quite remember. Somebody, two guys came out of a ruck at some point at each other's throats. Yeah. It yeah. was, I mean, it was it was kind of funny. The first 10 or 15, you know, I mean, it, 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 I know it's not right, but it's the way it was. So you either survive or you don't survive. <laughs> and there were memories there of back in, you know, I mean, you, you need your respect. And if that's what the laws and they weren't, you had to. It's a bit of the jungle stuff, and I'm not. I'm not recommending it. I'm not supporting it. I'm not. I'm not an advocate for it. But it's there, and, and if you had to survive in those days, then you had to. Well, I know that Mick Galway told me in one of these um, uh, podcasts that uh, when he was up in Ballymena as a as a young lad at a match, uh, after after they played the match, they were having a meal or chatting. He was. I think he got advice from. I can't remember exactly remember who, like Sid Miller or others. Uh, kind of elders in the club and they said for the first 10 minutes never mind about the ball for the first 10 minutes yeah, yeah. and he says may I add it's the best piece of advice I ever got yeah yeah yeah. well that's that was the case in some of the matches I played yeah, yeah. Case, so. uh, finally uh, and thank you very much for speaking it's been fascinating um, Kieran. what are your greatest memories and who are the greatest players that you played against that you just thought wow w what, what do you do uh, it's a tough one. I'd say, uh, without question, one of the greatest memories was my going down the tunnel as captain, my first match uh, against uh, Wales in 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 in, uh, um, in in Lansdowne Road. I mean, that without leading the team out was that going out there with the ball in hand and, and facing the crowd uh, was absolutely. I'll always I'll always have that memory. I think no matter where I go, I always have that memory with me, uh, and I'll always remember that. Uh, in terms of players, it's really tough. Uh, uh, Dintron, Philippe Dintron from France was a really tough nut and a very good mobile player and tremendously strong as a hooker. He was tremendously strong. Um, um, there were, I mean, uh, New Zealand at the time, the, the, the New Zealand uh, captain at the time, <laughs> he was a hooker as well. Uh, very nice guy, but he was, uh, uh, what's his name? He come to me. Uh, but tough. Always made a mark. Um, greatest players I played with, like we had such the, the forwards in, in in '82. Like the forwards in '82, you'd have to hand it to all because all the, the Irish papers before that was Dad's Army, Dad's Army, Dad's Army, and I was going in with Dad's Army. Of course, the thing with the military is Captain Dad's Army. It all fitted together, but those guys turned up. I knew they'd turn up. I knew they'd turn up. I knew that all the senior guys would turn up on the day because their their pride was. I didn't have to say anything about pride to those guys. They knew at the day that they were being lambasted and they all had great careers and they had played for the Lions, they had played for Ireland and they were world-class players and they were recognised internationally as world-class players and they had taken such crap from everybody, supporters, media and everything, right through the preparation of that 82 season. I had very little to get those guys going because they, they want, and I knew, I knew it was in them. It was only a question of getting it out and getting points on the board early. So that was a tremendous experience. And what I mentioned about the 85 side in terms of the, the freshness and the invigorating youth and the, the kind of, we, the no can die or no can lose and anything goes and anything did go and, and uh, people couldn't figure us out. They just couldn't figure us out as a team how to take us and didn't think we'd keep going the way we were going. 
but and, and to a man like they were they were a joy to play with so you know I had contrasting memories but great memories and the Lions tour like for the terms of sustainability and, and being part of a really tough hard experience and coming out the other end with everybody intact but it was like being in a war zone lots of the time but you came back and, and okay the results didn't go against you but as a person as a, I tell you you were a far different person when you exited something like that than you were going into it I tell you that <laughs> Kieran, it's Gerald. Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic talking. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. And will phone poke a new wet? And will knappy no fum nis orge wet? Nis eskalehusod? Faker na phone in takatal gwin on sho egg daro on von klishte is dani gidi gohan la hai glina agus taskina ta rod egen gogaktina tanismo olis egg daro dot com